and welcome to Deep North. Today, staff writer Eric Pomeranke will be reading his article, Full Circle, and we'll be speaking to him after the reading on uh, the topic of sustainability and the circular economy. On January 1st, 2023, a new set of laws regulating waste management and recycling came into effect. The regulations, called the Circular Law, aimed to reduce the amount of waste generated and to promote a society of recycling. Among other changes, a new recycling system was introduced, which now includes organic waste. New fees on packaging were introduced, ensuring that manufacturers and importers contribute to the cost of collection and recycling. And many categories of waste are now prohibited from being incinerated or disposed of in landfills. The implementation of these changes has neither been sweeping nor instantaneous, and 2023 will see many municipalities throughout Iceland gradually adjusting to the new system. The circular economy has existed as a concept since at least the 1970s, emerging out of the intersections of several disciplines, including economics, environmental science, and systems engineering. In contrast to a so-called linear economy, in which raw materials are manufactured into goods, sold, used, and then disposed of, a circular economy seeks to integrate recycling, waste management, and repairability into every level of the supply chain, ensuring that resources remain in circulation for as long as possible. Regulations to move the economy into a more circular system have existed since at least the early 2000s, when China introduced a series of circular economy laws. But the concept only truly began gaining traction in the 2010s, when the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and McKinsey, one of the most influential management consulting firms in the world, published influential reports on the circular economy, detailing not just its potential social and environmental benefits, but also its potential profitability. Policymakers, academics, and entrepreneurs increasingly agree that the circular economy is the next frontier in environmental sustainability. For many of its advocates, it is in fact the only viable option. And despite Iceland's image as a leader in green technologies, Iceland is already behind where it should be. After a precipitous drop in consumer spending in 2008, per capita household waste has been steadily trending upwards in Iceland. In 2009, the average Icelandic household produced just above 400 kilograms of waste annually. As of 2021, Icelandic households were producing 667 kilograms of waste, compared to the EU average of 530. According to Eurostat, in 2021, the last year for which statistics are available, Iceland placed 8th for average waste produced by household in the EU and EEA. Many are also concerned that regulations such as the circular law may be a form of, quote, greenwashing, turning a potentially radical socioeconomic change into a dressed-up buzzword for recycling. But for many in Iceland, the direction we must move in is clear. These are the entrepreneurs who are making the Icelandic economy circular. Endertak. Scottish brothers Rick and Ross McNair are working together to ensure that clothes and other materials aren't just reused, but that they're reused locally. Their fashion label, Endertak, a play on 
Endertaka, to repeat, is using a high fashion sensibility to make an environmental statement. Both brothers are accustomed to working with their hands, older brother Rick having made his own clothes for some 14 years, studying fashion design and working in the industry alongside figures like Shruli Recht, Mirka, and Gwithmundur Jorunson. Younger brother Ross, the more recent transplant to Iceland, has a background in electrical engineering and has repaired things and tinkered his whole life. When Ross first moved to Iceland to be with his brother Rick, Rick was rather burnt out from the world of high fashion. They spent time working in hostels, and it was out of this time that one of the first Endertak projects arose. I was working at a hostel, Ross recalls, and tourists would often take the blankets off of Iceland airplanes and leave them at the hotel. At the time, we didn't know that you could actually contact Iceland Air and send them back. We would keep them in the lost and found collection, and then send them to the Red Cross. The amount of blankets was striking to Ross, and the impulse to make something out of these abandoned blankets arose just as much out of an ethical commitment to reduce waste as much as the simple desire to make something with their hands. Since their early experiments with Iceland air blankets, Endertak has made everything from wallets out of old sailcloth winter jackets out of sleeping bags, and stylish blazers cut from old curtains. For the shopper, either trying to save some money or reduce waste, secondhand clothing stores are an obvious first stop. Many of us peruse the racks of consignment shops, either not thinking terribly much about where the clothes come from, or else assuming that perhaps they came from a nearby donation bin. With some secondhand shops, such as the Red Cross, this is indeed the case but it's a different story for many other vintage clothing stores throughout the world. In order to be able to follow trends and to make sure that the right Doc Martens are in the right town at the right moment for the right price, an international secondhand clothing market has developed that's much larger than many might imagine. Originally, sourcing their material was a very informal process. Calling around to camping supply stores with piles of unused blankets and sailcloth manufacturers asking if they had anything sitting around unused. But as the scope of Endertalk began to grow, Rick and Ross began to source clothing differently. Now, they source much of their material from the Red Cross sorting facility down by the Reykjavik docks. In 2021, the Icelandic Red Cross exported about 200 shipping containers filled with used clothing, Ross tells me. In total, this represents about 900 tons of fabric in that year alone. The word's gotten out in many other countries that Iceland has a very high-quality second-hand clothing market. You can even find brand-new, hardly-used parkas from expensive brands. Distributors abroad are willing to pay for unopened containers from Iceland, knowing that there's probably a lot of good stuff inside, he says. The international market also goes both ways and clothes from inside many Reykjavik vintage stores are just as likely to come from Texas or England as Kobogur. This global second-hand market operates on a very informal supply chain, so official figures are hard to come by, if they exist at all. While it's good that these clothes are seeing a second life abroad, at the same time, this endless importing and exporting of clothes also has its own cost, especially in carbon emissions. 
Another complicating factor is missing manpower. The Red Cross in Iceland can't sell anything with a hole, stain, or a broken zipper, and they don't have the means to mend their own clothes, meaning that a large proportion of Red Cross donations must be shipped abroad for further resale or processing. We just saw the sheer amount of stuff leaving the country, and we thought that something had to be done about this, Ross explains. We'd love to be able to stop even one ton from leaving the country, but we're not even at that capacity yet. Since their beginnings, when they accepted nearly everything, Endertak has streamlined their production recently, focusing more on denim. But Endertak is also pioneering new technologies in the secondhand fashion sphere. With a 3D printer, they've been experimenting with using recycled plastics to make zipper pulls, buttons, and even jewelry. Still, something strikes me as a tad paradoxical. The drive for novelty, to always innovate and buy new things, isn't this a part of the problem? Is there something about the logic of fashion, which so highly prizes trendiness, that goes against the grain of the circular economy? In short, is fashion a part of the problem? In the circular economy, we want to keep a resource in circulation for as long as possible. Ross says. You want people to sell their clothes because it reinforces the circular economy. If you go into a store and you see the same products that have been sitting there for months, then the circular economy has failed for those things because they've dropped out of circulation. We want to keep resources in circulation for as long as possible, and a part of that is making these things attractive, making people want to wear them. Endertalk is fighting against fast fashion, but in order to succeed, they still have to make beautiful clothes. We want to make something that's useful and will last. We don't want to make things that catch people's eye for a couple of weeks and then they throw it out. If anyone wants to throw our clothes away, they're welcome to throw them back to us, Ross says, laughing. Circular principle one, designing out waste. Products should be designed and optimized for a cycle of disassembly and reuse. These product cycles are different from recycling, where large amounts of embedded energy and labor are still lost. Green Bites One of the newest startups working with the circular ethos is Green Bites, who are using AI to streamline the ordering process for restaurants to better predict their needs and reduce food waste. The average restaurant creates a total of 35.6 kilograms of food waste every day. And in a nation like Iceland, where 90% of the food supply is imported, this is especially problematic. This food waste costs a restaurant, on average, 4.8 million ISK, or about 33,000 USD, every year, in addition to the carbon that's been emitted all along the supply chain in the creation processing, and transportation of this wasted food. Co-founder of Green Bites and CTO Gillian Verbercht, a native Canadian, came to Iceland to pursue an MS in sustainable energy at Reykjavik University. During her studies, when she met Green Bites co-founder and now CEO Renata Barajas, she, like many students, supported herself by working in the restaurant industry. Honestly, both of us were really shocked with the amount of food waste that was happening, Jillian recalls. The restaurant I worked at, every night we would throw out buckets and buckets of food. I would try to take some home, but there's only so much my friends would eat. 
After an August pre-seed round, GreenBytes released their app in November 2022. With four current users across 12 locations in Iceland, they already have commitments from six more restaurants to begin using their service. And although GreenBytes is still very much new, they already plan on expanding into international markets, with a possible entry into German, Dutch, and Norwegian markets in the near future. In many ways, restaurant ordering is the perfect task for AI. Given the amount of food waste produced both in Iceland and around the world, there is much room for human improvement. We're helping restaurants to reduce food waste by tapping into their sales and forecasting how much they should order to prepare best, so nothing is over or underordered, which is a common problem, Jillian explains. Often, a restaurant owner might overorder for fear of a dinner rush that never comes, and underordering can be just as damaging for a restaurant's bottom line, potentially creating shortages that turn customers away. Human decisions are often clouded by emotion, the fear of not having enough, and these decisions ultimately produce waste. Much of the debate around the quickly developing field of AI centers around the potentially destructive nature of the new technology. And to be sure, just as the internet revolutionized communications and disrupted traditional industries, no doubt similar processes will accompany the AI revolution. But minimizing waste, surely, must be one of the best applications of this new tool. Jillian says that, historically, it's been pretty difficult to predict sales, but more and more research is coming out that shows its basic time series analysis, which is pretty straightforward. Time series analysis, a method within data science and machine learning, is a way to infer future conditions from past data. The idea is simple but there are countless factors their model must take into account in order to be useful to restaurants. Among others, their recurrent neural network considers weather, holidays, and past ordering trends when making suggestions to restaurants. AI systems need to be trained on datasets in order to learn and be useful to humans. Currently, GreenBytes has trained their model on the Icelandic restaurant industry. If a restaurant opens their patio in April, for instance, but the weather report shows that the winter will linger, it likely means less business for that restaurant and fewer orders. The goal, however, is to make a more generalized model that can be applied anywhere in the world. This future model will be able to account for everything from location, climate, seasonality, the kind of restaurant, and so on. And as the model takes more into account, its suggestions will also grow in complexity. There does seem to be a limit to the model, however. Given the fickle nature of weather forecasting, the perishable nature of their wares, and a host of other complicating factors, forecasts are quite reliable a week in advance, but not much beyond. And much like the weather, Jillian says, the closer we are, the more accurate we can be. Currently, the best fit for Green Bites has been fast casual restaurants. Higher-end eateries generally employ professional chefs who have more experience ordering food and want the creative flexibility to base their menus on what's available. And for fast food chains, many restaurants rely on franchise suppliers and on more processed and frozen foods, lessening the demand for on-time delivery of fresh ingredients. Most fast-casual restaurants feature a relatively unchanging menu, which also simplifies the prediction model. 
Such restaurants also tend to have relatively high turnover, meaning that cooks may not order from suppliers as optimally as they could. And luckily for Green Bites, given the explosion in popularity of food halls throughout Iceland, fast casual restaurants are springing up every day. We have a connection to all three of the biggest point-of-sale services in Iceland, she says. We developed a simple API to automatically take all of a restaurant's sales and report them to our model, which allows us to forecast the raw ingredients. With the help of their app, cooks will have a powerful tool that enables them to break down their menus ingredient by ingredient and automatically take track of their stock. However, onboarding a new restaurant can sometimes present difficulties, Jillian admits. It gets cumbersome when restaurants aren't very organized. Maybe they're really organized in one person's head, but that doesn't always apply to the rest of the business. Taking stock was sometimes harder than it needed to be, so we designed a new system that helps restaurants think better about ordering from suppliers. They can build their menu based off of the ingredients they'll need to order, and then they can do their art and organize the rest of it themselves. In the future, they hope, Systems like theirs will also encourage restaurants to build their menus around the ordering process more and more. If one of the core goals of the circular economy is to reduce resource consumption by ensuring that resources stay in circulation for as long as possible, then by far the most important way to combat waste is by ensuring it doesn't occur in the first place. There is like a hierarchy based around the impact you can have, Jillian tells me. The best impact you can have is to reduce waste at its source by preventing waste from being created. Of course, we have to be reusing more, but it's not nearly as effective as preventing that waste. Reducing waste is by far the most important part of the circular economy, she says. While Green Bites is still quite new, they're dreaming big. Currently working between restaurants and suppliers, systems like theirs might one day be making decisions higher and higher up the supply chain. Our dream is to be able to collect a lot of data and make decisions about the amount of food being imported and move towards an ideal food supply system, Jillian says. If we manage our food supply system, then we won't have all of this excess in the first place. Circular Principle 2. Consumables and Durables Circularity introduces a strict differentiation between consumable and durable components of a product. Consumables in the circular economy, such as clothing, packaging, or furniture, will be made of mostly biological ingredients that can be safely returned to the biosphere. Durables, such as engines or computers, on the other hand, will be designed from the start for reuse. The Reykjavik Tool Library You would be forgiven for thinking that the Reykjavik Tool Library or Munasap, RBK, is indeed just a tool library. Started in 2018 by Anna Dematos, the Reykjavik Tool Library has grown from a humble collection of drills and sewing machines to encompass an NGO, a tech startup, and popular community events known as repair cafes, where volunteers help fix lamps, toasters, and more. And they may soon be going global. I have worked with tools my whole life, Anna tells me. Anna relocated to Iceland from the UK, where she worked in surfboard repairs. Iceland might not be the most obvious destination for surfers, but the results of Reykjavik Tool Library are hard to argue with. 
When I moved here from the UK, I sold everything, and I just thought I'd buy it all again in Iceland. But I couldn't really buy anything at all. Everything was so expensive. As many recent immigrants quickly discover, the cost of living in Iceland is high. Combined with high wages and standard of living, Iceland exists at the end of all supply chains, meaning that imports are often heavily marked up with tolls. The Reykjavik Tool Library, though clearly a project animated by some strong principles, arose just as much from the practical need for Anna to get her hands on some trusty tools. Tool libraries have existed throughout the world for at least 20 years. As media has become increasingly digital, many forward-thinking libraries have begun to offer community services in addition to books and other legacy media. I found out about the tool library in Toronto, Anna says. I contacted them, and they said I should come over, so I visited for a week, looking at how they do things. But there's a big difference between how we run things and many other tool libraries, she says. For starters, the Reykjavik Tool Library strives to be as egalitarian and transparent about pay as possible. Where many similar projects run on volunteers, all staff at Reykjavik Tool Library are paid. And not just paid, but paid equally. Much of their operation is still dependent on sporadic grant payments, and Anna claims they are always upfront about how long they can offer employment to their team. This may seem simply like good management practice, but it's more than that. If taken seriously, and not just accepted as a buzzword, the circular economy means truly sweeping changes in our economy. When we talk about the economy, it's not just finances, she says. It's also about the management of all our resources in general. So when we talk about the circular economy, we're also talking about the circular management of everything else. This entails, among other things, of taking care of both natural resources and the workers themselves. The beginning days of the Reykjavik Tool Library were a tough time for Anna. Going from grant to grant, and having to migrate the library from its former home on Leukevegur to her home in Kobovegur for some time. The city of Reykjavik offered them a space in Guvenes, a former industrial park east of Reykjavik. But it would be a hard sell to convince someone to take the bus that far just to borrow a drill. This has proved one of the central problems for the project. In order for it to be useful, it needs to be easily accessible. But Leukevegur rents and unreliable grants have made it difficult finding a more central location. But now the Reykjavik Tool Library has a more established home in Hapnerhus, right downtown by the harbor, with additional kiosks throughout several libraries in the capital region. So for 14,000 ISK, or about 98 USD a year, the Reykjavik Tool Library's 350-some members can borrow everything from hammers, camping equipment, and fondue sets. Just like a normal library, there are late fees, but no maximum amount of items per turn. Some of the all-time favorites include an ice cream machine, carpet cleaners and vacuums, and of course, drills. Many of these tools are relatively expensive investments, which get used only several times a year. So many people will just buy a drill because they feel some need to own it, Anna explains. But what they really need is a hole in the wall. There's also a large generational difference in habits. Most of our members are between ages 25 and 45 when people start owning homes and building their lives. But for many in the older generation, there's this common attitude of, well, why shouldn't I just buy something new? 
Anna is also quick to remind me that it is borrowing, not renting. And although members are generally very respectful of the tools, some breakage does inevitably occur. Repair and maintenance of the tools is a part of the membership fee, so there are no extra fees for accidents. They even accept trade-ins, and some members have offered to either replace broken items or trade for something similar. Given how central principles of the circular economy are to the tool library, it's no surprise that repair is accepted as an integral part of the process. We had this vacuum cleaner that was very popular but kept on breaking, Anna explains to me. It turned out there was one very small piece responsible, so we 3D printed multiple copies, so we always have extra. Many companies selling these tools don't want you to repair them. They don't give you the specs, the designs, the parts to actually fix them. In the worst case, some tools are even designed to be hostile to repair. Maybe a battery is inaccessible, or special proprietary tools are needed. These days, much of Anna's work is simply finding the funding to keep the library running. But the idea has taken off, and with a recent grant for 1,000 new members, uh, several big projects are on the horizon. In the coming year, the Reykjavik Tool Library will prepare to go global. Alongside an app, they are developing a kit that allows any individual or community to set up a similar system with an IKEA cabinet and the computer chips from popular smart televisions, a common form of e-waste. They will also be sending a demo kit to the library in Isafruder for testing, and a library in Germany has expressed their interest to adopt the system. In the not-so-near future, the Reykjavik Tool Library could largely be an app developer helping to set up similar but autonomous systems throughout the world. Their NGO, Hringrausesetur Islands, is also beginning to fund research into life cycle assessments, or LCA, of various materials. The data from this research will be free and publicly available. And they even have potential investors. But we're taking it very slow, Anna says. We want everyone to understand what we're about and to be on the same page. This is a long-range vision, not a short-term project. Circular Principle 3. The Power of the Inner Circle The tighter the circle, the less a product has to be changed and reused, and the faster it returns to use, the higher the potential savings of resources, energy, and labor embedded in the product. Plastplan Björn Steinar Blumenstein and Brynjolfur Stefansson have been friends since they were six years old. And now they've made a name for themselves designing everything from bookshelves, cups, and dildo stands from recycled plastics. Their studio out at the end of Granti, Reykjavik's harbor district, is part industrial manufacturing facility and part art studio. And as we sit down to talk, I notice that bits of paint and plastic fleck Björn Steinar's man bun, which towers sloppily above me. Plastplan began in 2019 when Steinar, also known as Bussi, returned from an internship in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, Bussi worked with Dave Hawkins, the founder of international open-source recycling collective Precious Plastic. The goal of Precious Plastic is simple to make plastic recycling accessible, exciting, and perhaps even profitable. Thanks to open source initiatives like this, 
Plastplan is one of the many creative startups throughout the world finding ways to repurpose plastic. What we've been able to do, Yussi told me, is copy the existing plastic manufacturing process, but on a micro scale. All of the machinery for a recycling and manufacturing facility would normally be the cost of, say, a three-story house. But with this scaled-down version, each machine costs something more like a fancy office chair. In their modest workspace in Kranti is everything they need from their production process. Plastic shredders, extruders, sheet presses, and injection molds. They've even custom-built an industrial-sized 3D printer, and have recently acquired a robotic arm that allows them to print complex shapes. One of Plasplan's very first projects was to create dividers for Kronan, the little plastic triangles that separate shoppers' groceries on the checkout belt. And since their early days, they've increasingly gained recognition as a leading design studio in Iceland. In November 2022, Plasplan won the Icelandic Design Award. In the words of the panel, for not only doing things well, but also for doing the right thing. And according to Bussi, the award couldn't have come at a better time. We never needed recognition of that kind as much as then, he says. A week earlier, our favorite machine, our sheet press, caught on fire. Basically, there was a short circuit in one of the boards. We're so used to the smell of burning plastic that we never noticed it. But then, all of a sudden, it was ablaze. We were thinking, is this it? And despite the increasing recognition of their work in recent years, it hasn't always been easy. When dealing with industrial manufacturing processes, mistakes can be especially costly. We've made a million mistakes. That's how we learn, he says. They just happen to be very expensive, time-consuming mistakes. Something that's taken especially long to master is working with all the different kinds of plastics. There are seven main types of plastic used in consumer goods and packaging, as many will recognize from the recycling symbol on the bottom of many goods. Not all plastics are suitable to work with, and Plasplan works largely with polypropylene, or PP5, a plastic that is considered to be very safe, durable, and heat-resistant. It's a pain in the ass to master the speed, temperature, cooling, and so on for each kind, Brynjolver tells me. But it's not just a matter of knowing which kinds of plastic are suitable for which application. When I say source, he continues, I don't mean just plastic like high-density polyethylene, but a very specific source of high-density polyethylene that we know is going to be a steady source. So, for example, the film wrapped around hay, that's something that there's like hundreds of tons every year being thrown away. So it really makes sense for us to master that source, because in the past we've spent months mastering material that we never saw again. Working with so many different sources of recycled plastic means that it's always a game of trial and error, Brynjolver says. What tends to complicate these things is that there are, you know, these seven categories of plastic, but then for every type of plastic, there are then 40 or 50 subcategories. A manufacturer might add a substance to make it a bit clearer, a bit softer, and this stuff is never labeled, so even when we have these symbols, you never actually know what exactly you're working with. More stringent labeling requirements, for instance, would be a clear example of a government regulation that would meaningfully move the economy in a circular direction. But when we talk about the circular economy, it's never totally clear what we mean. 
and Busey ought to know, as he's currently writing his master's thesis on the barriers for designers working within the circular economy framework. I still can't fully wrap my head around how complicated its implementation is actually going to be, Busey says. For instance, it needs to be a bit clearer how our customers and collaborators are to approach us and deliver the material back to us, Busey says. And although Plasplan's operation meets most of the criteria for a circular project, recycling is only the very end of a much longer story in a material's lifetime. In a truly circular system, products will be designed from the very beginning for continual cycles of disassembly and repurposing. And while Plasplan clearly represents a step in that direction, we are still far from it. Often, when we think about acting in an environmentally responsible way, we think we have to make do without. We have to deny ourselves things for the greater good. And so we almost don't expect ethical design to look this sexy. Plastics have a bad reputation these days, but as a material, its potential is limitless. And a large part of Plasplan's project is also recovering the potential from this material. When used responsibly, it can create cheap, safe, and yes, beautiful objects for our daily lives. Of course, it would be hardly circular design if they follow trends too closely. Consumers would grow bored of dated furniture and want to modernize. Plusplan has to be beautiful enough for people to crave these objects in their lives, but it also has to be aesthetically relevant decades down the line. The design process, I imagine, is rather challenging. Or, as Busey puts it, how the fuck do you design a timeless item? Busey, however, calls this mundane innovation. We always want to be innovating and creating new opportunities within plastic recycling. But we're not trying to reinvent the wheel when it comes to our collaborations. If we're designing something for the public library, we'll make something that makes sense. Like a bookstand. And when we worked with 66 Degrees North, it was a buckle. We believe in honest design a real purpose. Circular Principle 4. Cascading Cycles. Reusing resources can cascade them back into the supply chain. Cotton clothing might be reused as second-hand apparel, then as fiber fill in upholstery, and the fiber fill then reused in insulation for construction. In each case, new materials are saved from circulation before the cotton fibers are safely returned to the biosphere. Coming around. In researching startups working with the circular ethos, it struck me how many entrepreneurs were foreign residents in Iceland. The cost of living is like a splash of cold water. And although these entrepreneurs are all animated by a commitment to reduce waste and protect the environment, the projects briefly profiled here are also a very pragmatic response to real problems. Iceland is still, in many ways, a place of scarcity, though you might not know it. Prices are high and imports are expensive, but so often, environmental innovation seems to lead us back into history. We rediscover how things were once done, how to make do with what we have. We come full circle. In the influential 2013 report co-authored by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and McKinsey & Company, Toward the Circular Economy, the following fact is laid out over several pages, clearly and coldly backed up with graphs, trends, and expert analysis. Resource scarcity is here to stay. 
Perhaps so many startups in Iceland have become circular because the situation in Iceland foreshadows a more generalized situation of scarcity. The previous century saw an explosion in consumer goods, creating a world of infinite abundance for half of the world's population. From the 19th to the 20th century, the real price of most raw materials collapsed due to technological innovations and global markets. But this trend is slowly reversing, and this world of infinite abundance is every day being disproved as the mirage it was. Moving towards a circular economy may not be a matter of clear conscience, but a matter of survival. So, it's likely for the best that we've gotten the ball rolling. Iceland's recent circular law is a step in the right direction. But more ambitious circular regulations are already in place in Iceland's peer nations, including VAT exemptions for spare parts, repairability ratings, and stricter labeling requirements for materials. And many of these innovative startups are still figuring things out for themselves. With government regulation, more formalized systems could be developed to enable entrepreneurs to make the most out of our waste. Well, thank you for that, Eric. Um, I wanted to begin by asking, uh, what's the most interesting thing you learned during the writing of this article? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is definitely the kind of thing that uh, takes you all over the place. Um, you know, something that was maybe particularly interesting to me, though, is just looking at the statistics for waste across countries in the EU and EEA. And, you know, a lot of the Nordic nations and also Germany um, have very good reputations for having good waste management systems. Uh, Germany in particular um, is, you know, kind of in a way world famous maybe for how well it's managed its recycling. Um, but it was really kind of striking to me how directly correlated to wealth waste is. Um, and, you know, it might actually surprise a lot of people, but the highest waste producer in the EU and EEA, I mean, not the, not the EU, uh, but it's, it's Norway. And I think that off the top of our heads, a lot of us will kind of think that um, that might not be the case. I think that there's maybe an image of the Nordic countries uh, of having, you know, very good waste management systems. Maybe we just kind of assume that a certain kind of, uh, progressive social democracy has also kind of figured out the problem of waste. Um, but I mean, really this just directly has to do with wealth. Um, wealth creates waste. Uh, we buy things, we buy more than we need and we create waste. Uh, and it's very clear. Um, I mean, like looking at the waste trends in Iceland also, I mean, right after the banking collapse, there's just a massive decrease in household waste because people are buying less, they're spending less. Um, this, this is maybe not uh, particularly relevant, but I just remember as I was writing this piece, I was uh, traveling with my wife and uh, there's just this image that really stuck with me. And um, we, it, it, it was one of these things where we arrived uh, on the same plane and you kind of uh, just like recognize other people and then you're kind of leaving on the same plane because like presumably like some other couple just had the same idea to kind of like get the same weekend flight as you or whatever. So there was this Icelandic couple and we were at the same like rental car facility and 
you know, uh, we were abroad. And so this Icelandic couple, I guess, like took the occasion to do some shopping for like luxury brands. And they were doing this kind of like last minute packing where they were just, you know, like taking like all these bags of, you know, like expensive designer brands out of the back of their car and making sure that everything fit into their luggage. And then the end result of this scene was just this trash can overflowing with like Versace and like Hugo Boss shoe boxes and bags and stuff uh, just in this parking lot by an airport. And there was something very poetic about that, just like this connection between like wealth and waste and spending and how, yeah, like I, I guess it really made me think about how waste is the other side of the coin of affluence, maybe. Yeah, um, and, and would you say that you've become more or less optimistic about the circular economy and about our management of resources in general after delving into this? Uh, well, I mean, I forget who this quote is attributed to, but there's uh, something that I've always really identified with, which is um, pessimism of the mind, but optimism of the will. And inevitably, reading about this stuff, I mean, it is bleak. Uh, there is just too much waste. Um, however, you know, I mean, of course, these startups are all doing really cool things. Um, you know, I think that a really common... So um, it's a really big concern, I think, for a lot of people working with this idea because it is, you know, as I kind of said in the piece... Uh, a potentially revolutionary idea that we are really designing objects from the very beginning for continual reuse. And that is so much more than recycling. Like it goes like really deep into the production process and it basically fundamentally changes like how we think about objects and stuff. Um, but you know, like you do just see this word being thrown around a lot. Um, like for instance, there is this new business park being built in West Iceland, uh, I forget exactly where, um, but, you know, it was a kind of environmentally friendly business park. And, you know, I'm sure they were prioritizing green energy and all of these things and maybe using certain building materials and stuff like that. Uh, but their whole thing was that this is a circular business park. And, you know, to just be kind of strict to the definition, like that's just not the case because circular has to do with a lot more than just prioritizing some green materials and, you know, green energy and stuff. Like it's really a redesign of society and the economy. And so I think that like one of the threats is that like this word circular can kind of just become interchangeable with like green or recycling or something. Um, so, you know, that maybe has less to do with like pessimism or optimism, but I think that you know, like if you take the idea seriously, it's really interesting. It is like a really exciting direction, actually. Um, but I think that it needs to kind of uh, be well defined at the same time. Otherwise, it kind of risks, like, like, run, like runs the risk of becoming less meaningful. Yeah, I, I'm often struck by, and I, I've often wondered when I'm doing the recycling at home. I mean, we have a bin for plastic and paper and then we have you know a kind of drawer for glass and metals and you know i spend a lot of time 
when I recycle, I'm I'm like washing the cardboard and cleaning it, and you know I, I, yeah, I tend throw away to, the pizza box, <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, and then when it comes to especially like electronic devices or toys, it, I'm I'm often wondering like why isn't there you know um, some kind of demand made of manufacturers that okay if you're going to make this thing then you have to essentially create some kind of blueprint for how this thing is going to be disassembled after use. And then the government should, you know, make you pay for the waste that you throw away. And I mean, that mindset just doesn't seem to exist when we buy something that we don't think, well, okay, um, how long will this last? And when it breaks down, what will I do? I mean, it, is it also a matter of like, I mean, I realize that we can't put this on the individuals, but like, yeah, it, it just feels bizarrely lacking that this is such an obvious and huge problem that we haven't somehow incentivized and penalized things through use of basic economics and regulation. Yeah, you know, I mean, something that was also kind of on the back of my mind in writing this um, was the yellow vest protest movement in France. Um, and, you know, obviously the politics of all that is a little bit complicated to get into. Um, but to me, one of the kind of central aspects of their protest is fund- is fundamentally about the way in which new climate policies are increasingly being borne by just the population. And I think that there does need to be more of a sharing of the energy transition. Um, it can't only ever negatively affect your life. It can't only ever just mean more fees, uh, more, you know, kind of annoyances and things like this. Um, You know, I mean, however, at the same time, uh, I think that something, you know, something that I was also kind of thinking about a lot in this piece uh, was just this, like the small demands that are always kind of being made of us to be more green. Right. And, you know, this is going to sound incredibly petty, um, but because of these new environmental laws, uh, the way that they do recycling in my apartment building changed um, and you're no longer allowed to use the garbage chute uh, because uh, the organic waste also has to be sorted. And so to encourage people to not just throw the organic waste in with the unsorted trash, uh, they completely like boarded up with like metal rivets and stuff, uh, the garbage chute, which, you know, to be honest is really annoying because when the weather is bad, uh, now I have to go all the way outside of the building downstairs, like down four flights, uh, to just take out the trash. And before there was the garbage chute that was just on my floor. And, you know, if we're making dinner and the garbage was full, it wasn't a problem to just, you know, run to the stairwell and take out the trash. And now it has become, you know, I mean, honestly, a pain in the ass. Um, but in some ways, we are all being asked to collectively take on <laughs> this this annoyance. Um, and, you know, it's like you try to find meaning in that, uh, but at the same time, you know, it is annoying, right? <laughs> Yeah, what do you think of the idea? Um, I was thinking about um, climate change the other day, and the the analogy struck me to addiction. Is that 
you know, when you have someone who's addicted, the um, the common refrain among therapists, if, if they're truly losing control, is that, well, they have to hit rock bottom. And I've been thinking a lot about that concept as far as climate change, but also maybe as far as resource management in the circular economy. And this may be a bleak point, but I mean, it, it strikes me that we're just going to continue along this path, maybe making minor changes and tweaks, but it won't be until we hit what you said, you know, research, uh, resource scarcity or, or some kind of breaking point that we're going to be actually forced to change. How does that strike you? Yeah. You know, I mean, um, I think it's pretty clear to a lot of people, um, in a certain generation that, kind of taking for granted a certain guarantee of the good life is no longer as guaranteed as it used to be. And, you know, I mean, this does just have to do with large scale historical trends. I mean, uh, for the 19th century, um, Europe just had this, ma and of course the US, uh, the West had this massive you know, for lack of a better word, zone of extraction. I mean, there were, you know, both actual colonies and neo-colonies. And for a very long time, there were, and, you know, it's obviously still to this day, uh, there was this excess flowing into the West. And I think that, you know, something is changing. We're less and less living in a world in which North American and Western European economic dominance is taken for granted. We're more and more living in a kind of like bipolar world uh, where, you know, China is increasingly competing with the West economically. And, you know, I mean, all of this is to just to say that it's no longer the case that there's just this infinite abundance that we can take for granted. And, you know, there never was like that, that abundance was being taken from somebody else. But I think that we're increasingly just waking up to this fact that we never did live in a world of abundance. Nothing was ever infinite. Everything was always finite. In some sense, it was a zero sum game because it was a zero sum game because the things that we had were in some sense taken from other people. And now that this is kind of like less and less the case, I think that there's a lot of people who are just kind of wondering like, you know, where is my slice of the pie all of a sudden? And why am I kind of being asked to uh, consume less and why is everything expensive? And, you know, I mean, obviously there is an immediate reason right now of like with inflation and uh, all this supply chain stuff after COVID. Um, but, you know, like there's also something longer term going on there. And, you know, I mean, I guess just as regarding uh, hitting rock bottom, you know, uh, hopefully not. Uh, that doesn't sound like a very nice place to be <laughs> for a society. You know, I mean, I think that um, one of the reasons, of course, why Icelandic politicians are trying to be kind of extra aggressive in their environmental policies that they're pursuing is to set an example, right? I mean, like Iceland is a small enough society where you can introduce a change relatively quickly in a way that with like a larger scale economy and society, there's just so many more moving parts. And, you know, Iceland's size maybe kind of allows it to be more agile in that sense. You can kind of 
pivot faster. Um, and, you know, so if Iceland's kind of trying to be in some sense a trendsetter or role model for the rest of the world, you know, I mean, hopefully, um, things do change before a, yes, a uh, rock bottom scenario. <laughs> well, rock bottom is, uh, the mental pessimism <laughs> that, uh, yeah, that I seem to advocate at this current moment, but it's easy to be just one final note. Um, since you shared that anecdote about traveling abroad, um, I mean, I, I, we went to the States last December and, you know, it, it, it's just such a funny feeling that, you know, you spend, I spent a lot of time like trying to recycle properly at home and worrying about plastic. And, and then you visit a Publix in Florida and, you know, you buy something and they have this spinning rack of plastic bags and they put everything separated into different plastic bags. And then when I tell them, no, no, you just, you can put everything in one bag, please. And, and they look at you like you're absolutely nuts. Like, well, yeah. what do you mean? Well, I think uh, this is going to get crushed. Or I'm like, yeah, I mean, uh, I'll take my chances as far as that that's concerned. But yeah, this is obviously a very big global systemic problem that we may not be able to fix during this interview. <laughs> <laughs> but I liked your article. And uh, I think on that note, we'll wrap up. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking, Ragnar. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.